Hello. Hello, is this Emily? Yes, this is. Is this CK? This is CK. How's your day going? Good. How about you? I am currently sitting in a closet in my studio apartment in Williamsburg. Oh my <laughs> girlfriend is out in the main studio part of the apartment working. And okay. I've got a little setup in here. I got a computer, a microphone, headphones. <laughs> okay. I'm next to okay. all the shoes. And I'm just calling okay. people up and hearing their stories. What's your setup right Great. now? So um, I think I definitely could be worse for me. Um, I'm at my apartment in Soho. I live by myself. So sometimes I get lonely, but more often than not, I am just enjoying decorating my apartment, doing weird things around my house. So I'm working from home right now and I'm sitting among craft supplies with CNN on mute. So you keep the news on even with the sound off. Yeah. Yeah. I keep it on with the sound off. And then if, if something interesting comes on then I turn, I unmute it, you know, keep one eye on it. I get a little bit too anxious with the news right now. Yeah. I mean, maybe I would be less, less anxious if I had it off, but I feel like whenever I turn it off, something major happens, especially like staying in New York, you know? I mean, we're all under a cloud of worry, that's for sure. Yeah. So let's go back to January 1st of this year. It's 2020, yeah. new decade. What were mm -hmm. you most excited about that this year might have in store for you? So one thing that I'm really excited about is that I'm going to be joining your good friend Joe Regattas as chapter director of NLC next year in starting in July. So that's something that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, and I think that's something that I'm fortunate to still is still going on in the times of the pandemic. <laughs> so for all of our listeners out there who don't know yeah. our good friend Joe and just what a mensch he is, can you talk, sure, a little, yeah. talk a little bit about that organization and why it means enough to you to want to join? Yeah, definitely. So the organization is called New Leaders Council. Um, it's a national 501c3 organization that provides a leadership fellowship to 20 young professionals in 50 different cities across the country. So what that looks like is a weekend. It's six weekends over six months of weekend long intensive um, training sessions. And the fellowship is, it's a impressive bunch of people and bunch of trainers. Um, and so I was lucky enough to be one of the fellows in 2017. Um, and then have been the communications director for the group since then. Um, but I think like, what really makes it so special in addition to the community of awesome people who are incredibly high achieving in like the most random um, and disparate areas of, you know, across the board of careers um, is the network and the community that you, that you build out of it. 
So I, you know, one reason I want to give back to the organization by staying involved is to be part of that um, and to, to give people the same experience I had. And that's also how I know Joe through that. So that was something that you had on the horizon for 2020. And yeah. what else was going on as you looked forward to your year? How was work going? How is life going? How is your health? Yeah, so all of the above are good. Can't complain. Um, I am a consultant, so I am lucky to be able to work from home. Um, I'm, and you know, I, I actually am a consultant for state and local governments. So we don't have, um, I guess, our our industry isn't um, isn't really hit, I guess you could say, as hard as a lot of people who are relying on like customers or investors or commerce in general. So um, I think as far as starting 2020, I had a really good 2019, to be honest. Um, I started this job about a year ago. So I'm hoping to continue and really just enjoy what I feel like is a good spot right now for me. So you, you had a lot of momentum coming out of 2019. 2020 did, is yeah. looking great. You know, January goes by, things are things are going well. And then when did yep. you first start hearing rumblings about the approaching pandemic? Yeah, so um, let me see. So as I said, I'm a consultant, so I fly Monday through Thursday every week. So I think I went to the airport once in February and the person who was like checking the tickets, um, was like near boarding pass to go into like the pre-check lane thing was wearing a mask. And I was like, Oh, I feel really safe going onto this airplane right now. But it was still like a far off seeming thing. Um, I think it was the first week of March. I traveled, um, to my client, which is in Michigan, for the last time, and I kind of felt like it was crazy, but I think that's when it really got real for me. And so, are you, were you working at Ann Arbor, or are you in Detroit or somewhere else? Um, in Lansing, actually, which is the capital of Michigan. That's um, right. I was little known fact. <laughs> I was getting yeah. my capital and my yeah. Mich- uh, University of Michigan. <laughs> Um, yeah, confused. And, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I have to ask, because it might, yeah. this might be a, a small world instance. And just for all <laughs> the listeners at home, Emily and mm-hmm. I have never met. And this is the first time that we've ever spoken. And the mutual friend referenced earlier in our eight minute conversation so far, Joe put us in touch. And so that is the only context through which we are now speaking, which is kind of fun. Um, mm-hmm. Are you crossing paths with uh, Garland Gilchrist II at all? I am not. Oh, I was really going to be happy if that I, was a small world instance of I, a mutual friend. I know. It- I, I say that with hesitation because it is such a small world. And given that I am working for the state of Michigan, um, it's a small world. So, 
So I'm probably going to like get off this call and then run into him or something somewhere. He is the best. Like I, uh, <laughs> in 2017, June, a friend from college was like, Hey CK, I know that you do fundraising. We are doing okay. a fundraiser in Midtown Manhattan for a buddy of mine who is running for city clerk of Detroit. And I okay. said, okay, great. But yeah. the guy who is asking me is just one of those people that you always say yes to. And uh -huh. I said, what can I do to help? And then he said, look, mm -hmm. Hillary lost Michigan by less than a hundred thousand votes. Detroit is, is predominantly African-American, leans Democratic. The city clerk runs voting there. There were huge uh, errors and delays in issues on the day of the election. It's unclear how many votes were not able to be cast uh, or, or lost. And there's this this man named Garland, mm -hmm. who my my friend Danelle knew because his wife was in was the bridesmaid in Garland's wedding. This okay. is this is how twisted it is, or you know, uh, circuitous, yeah. and. Mm -hmm. And so he had worked on the Obama campaign. He'd worked for Move On. I think he'd had a stint at Microsoft. I might be misremembering that. But he saw mm -hmm. an opportunity to mm -hmm. run for city clerk. And and he, he was such an outside candidate. And he ended up losing by just a few percentage points. I mean, like, half, like less than a percentage point. And oh, that's crazy. And, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, he made local news is kind of a, a really successful, though, um, losing campaign. Mm -hmm. And then when, you know, Gretchen Whitmer was like uh, named him as her running mate, it was like, wait a second. You went from losing the <laughs> city clerkship of Detroit to then mm -hmm. becoming the first African-American lieutenant governor of Michigan. Mm -hmm. I, I can't wait to mm -hmm. see the biopic on Garland someday because when uh -huh. I met him for the first time was at this fundraiser and you know I'd gotten some people in the room you know we were able to raise some money uh, and but I hadn't met him in person before uh -huh. we just been on a couple of calls and he mm -hmm. walks in you know he's like six foot six he's got this huge smile and he spoke for probably 45 minutes then answered questions for mm -hmm. the 15 and mm -hmm. I brought a buddy who's interested in politics and we walked out and we looked at each other and we're like, I wonder if the experience we just had was similar to watching a young Barack Obama in the I mid nineties yeah. give mm -hmm. a give a talk when he was running for the Illinois State Government. So that's a little backstory about how I know Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist the second. Mm -hmm. Um and mm -hmm. if you uh if you do run into him in the coming months, please do say hello for me. I, I do, I do. And actually, one of my um, close colleagues is lives in Detroit and is very um, involved in the, in, you know, I mean, obviously, extracurricularly in politics and government and stuff. And I, I bet when I tell him the story, he's going to say, I can't believe you don't know who he is. And like, everybody knows who he is. So, I mean, it's a I'm waiting obscure... to get that lecture from my friend. You know, but, look, um, knowing the lieutenant yeah. governors of, mm -hmm. I mean, I have no idea who the lieutenant governor of New York is. Do I don't even know if we have right. a lieutenant governor. 
<laughs> well, I mean, he sounds like a pretty monumental figure just by virtue of who he is, you know, like somebody who you would, you should know about and who I'm sure has done, done great things for being in that administration. Um, <laughs> so we're early March now. You've just flown to Lansing and you've seen the <laughs> mask on, you know, one of the fellow passengers and you're thinking to on yourself... The, the airport attendant. Oh, the airport attendant. So you're, you're seeing yeah. that and you're like, uh... So I'm like, oh God, here I go. Am I really making this turn down this flight check-in lane? And, but but you do, and you fly to Lansing. And you work for your Monday through Thursday and you fly back Friday. Mm-hmm. And have you... Yeah. And that Friday would have been March 5th, I believe? March 6th? Uh, yeah. Because the second was Monday, so Tuesday's the third, Wednesday the fourth. Kind of looked at it. It'd been March 6th. Yes, March 6th. Yeah. And have you been on a plane since March 6th? I have not. No. And just... <laughs> you've just Go been ahead. in your apartment with, with CNN on mute. I have. Um, yeah. Well, no, I think like the week, the following week, um, we were still, we're still moving a little bit. Right. That was before really like the, I think I went to the office, my office in New York on Monday or something of that week. That that um, Monday was March 9th. And that was the last time I had a day of work. I've been out of work from March 10th on. Mm -hmm. And what do you do for work? I am a charity auctioneer of all random things to be so no way yeah not-for-profits hire me to come to their fundraising galas and either be entertaining or persuasive or that's yeah. so yeah random. that's amazing though because i've been at so many of those like high dollar nonprofit fundraisers when the auctioneer is like so bad you know and it's so awkward and everybody's like Oh, it's kind of funny, but it's not. And yeah. it's just like grueling life. I bet that's like such a valuable skill, though. I mean, that's awesome. It's something I love to do. Look, I've been running my own business <laughs> for, um, I think today is like, I think like April 14th may be my <laughs> six year anniversary of working for myself. Oh, it was. Congratulations. Thank you. I just, I just thought of that. Um, I hadn't considered that this is, this is that right around that time where the anniversary falls. Uh, but no, I feel really lucky. So I travel around the world raising money for different charities and, you know, like you, 2020 was off to a good start. I did my first event out in Wyoming and then I had an event here in New York and then I had events, um, in Birmingham, the sub, uh, suburb just outside of Detroit. I did some fundraising for a school district out there, had an event in Toronto, had an event in Savannah, Georgia on February 29th. And that's when we started getting our first whispers of, Oh, uh, we're in the event business where people gather and have parties and yeah. this might not exist yeah. uh, shortly. Um, and so yeah. I had fundraisers that March 2nd and then the Thursday and Friday. And then the last one was that Monday, March 9th. And then mm-hmm. it's just been, um, I recorded my first podcast on March 11th when the writing on the okay. wall was like, okay, you aren't going to work or earn money for, some period of time so you might as well keep yourself busy and 
Yeah. This conversation that I'm having is now my 53rd interview in the last 34 days. Wow, well, well done. So you didn't waste any time. I, I've been keeping myself sane and busy through these conversations. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, you're going into work that second week of March. And what mm -hmm. is your company saying? Like from, you know, inside the consulting world where you guys are expected to have the answers to, you know, the thorniest of problems. Um, mm -hmm. w what is, what was the sense at that point? Yeah. Yeah. So um, at that point, it's, it's funny now actually to look back on, um, we were, so I, I think one of those days I got a call from somebody in Michigan about my apartment address so they could mail me a laptop. And I was kind of like, all right, this is a little bit, you know, this is like, I'm probably going to be back in a few weeks, you know, but, but okay. And um, then we kind of, we talked about it, you know, and I said, okay, I'm not going to travel until we have a big meeting um, on March like 26th or something. So I'm not going to travel until March 26th. And um, lo and behold, of course, March 26th came and went and I am nowhere near getting on a plane again. But um, yeah, I think it's been, it's been interesting, I think, to see, you know, so we work with a lot of state and local government clients. So it's been um, very, um, but also somewhat but rewarding to help them with some of the challenges that they face with moving to teleworking and um, the whole response to this terrible, you know, catastrophe that's kind of come up and taken priority over a lot of our projects. And what are some of the solutions you have come up to for your client-specific problems that you think are particularly noteworthy or innovative or interesting? Yeah, well, I, I think, um, to be honest, a lot of, a lot of um, government organizations don't have the, um, you know, the infrastructure to do a lot of working from home. So our focus um, has been a lot on on that and making sure um, folks are set up to work remotely. Um, so while it might not um, might not be what you have in mind as innovative, I think that it is a really important step um, that has to be taken and it gets a lot more difficult when you're dealing with lots of like, personal confidential data and a lot of other um, you know, challenges that we have in that, in that world. I have a buddy who works for the state of California and he manages, you know, a team in a department. And when they were forced to work from home, he was getting some of the most ridiculous requests. Like one of his team members was like, well, if I'm working from home, then it's an office and I need a fire extinguisher. And that might be an isolated case, but I hear things <laughs> like that. And I am quite, liberal progressive especially in the context of being uh you know an upper middle class uh american white male uh, you know i mm -hmm. definitely present some ways and believe that others and i'm almost always on the side of government over private industry like i i'm a lot more suspicious and skeptical mm -hmm. about about private government i mean about private um companies uh than i am mm -hmm. of government um, though this administration uh, on the federal level uh, notwithstanding um, 
But I hear stories like that about government workers making ridiculous claims, and it makes me, like, it gives me empathy to the other side. It's just like, you know, government is corrupt in it. And, you know, what kind of BS is that? You'd never be able to get away with that sort of request if you worked in you know, private enterprise. You just would be fired. But all the, all the kind of government restrictions in place in terms of firing um, allow mm-hmm. that to proceed. And I'm wondering, you know, if, if it's that sort of recalcitrance among just individual people um, that has been assembly block for your clients at all, or if people are, uh, for the most part, on board in having a spree de corps that says, hey, we, we need to tackle the problems that are facing the people in the, of the state of Michigan. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's a great question. And um, it's actually one, you know, that kind of sentiment about government and government employees is one that I have an interesting perspective on, I think, because I worked in the private sector, or I guess I still kind of do, but I worked for commercial clients um, in consulting until last year, so for almost 10 years. And I always, you know, of course, that's what everybody says about the stereotype of government workers. And when I made the change to working for state and local government clients, I found that it's really much like it is in the private sector. I mean, there's the people who are motivated to do the right thing for the company or for the constituents. And then there's people who want to take every shortcut and every break that they have, you know? So, I mean, I think the people that I work with in Michigan are great. Um, I think they've actually been very, very, um, very great about having, about switching to working from home and getting everything done that they need to do. So they're awesome. But I think on a on a larger scale, there's you know there's there's some good and there's some bad, just like there is in any industry. And do you think that when this pandemic is over, and there's probably going to be opportunities for change, for transformation, is there any sense from your clients that one of those changes could come within how government is structured and might make it more efficient? and it might better serve the people of Michigan? Um, I mean, I think it, I, I guess I hesitate to talk about Michigan um, as a specific example because That's I fair. think that they are really ahead of the curve in a lot of ways. I mean, I, you know, they're, they on some levels um, surpass some of my, my private sector commercial clients that I had in past years. I'd love to hear that. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, rock on to them for sure. Um, but also, you know, like uh, we all work in a very small subset of the government, so it's hard to speak for the government overall. But I think in general, um, perhaps in other states and other localities where people aren't used to working remotely and doing things electronically, um, this will be a good catalyst for people to get used to working in that fashion more than they are now. So I guess, that, I mean, that could be somewhat of a silver lining, but I mean, there's just so much setback that it's hard to sometimes see through the trees. Yeah. And the setback is, as you accurately noted, incredibly severe, but I guess yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that there is a silver lining and that, yeah, especially because, you are working with one of the best state governments out there. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that my perception is clouded by my 
connection to the lieutenant government, like, lieutenant governor. I'm just like, yeah, like 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 you said, rock on, Michigan. Um, yeah. yeah. But I'm. Is there anything? Are you putting anything in place or encouraging your clients to put anything in place to start thinking about how to move forward when this is all over in order to make it transformational? You know, not just to, there is obviously going to be, they're returning to the status quo, but is there, are there conversations about, hey, not only do we want to get everybody back on their feet, but we want them, you know, steadier and stronger than they've ever been before and this is a real opportunity to shake things up in a positive way Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i guess to some degree i think kind of the nature of a lot of like disaster recovery work um kind of takes on that mindset um and i think that's an area that we are going to end up moving into with, with some of our clients um but I think for right now, we're just trying to focus on getting um, getting things back to normal, you know, and getting a lot of, of a lot of things worked out as far as like federal reimbursement and that whole kind of um, financial management side of things. In your so. more optimistic timelines, when will that normal reemerge, and or, or are you in sort of just a wait and see holding pattern? given the uncertainty surrounding all of this? So, um, well, I I guess we're still, we're still very actively, I guess, working on stuff. So we're not really, from like a work perspective, we don't really get that like on hold that um, some people do, I think. But um, I was watching, I think earlier today when I had my TV not on mute, I heard that it might be until 2022 when they, um, when we stop social distancing, you know? So I think like what I'm watching right now, the closest is the antibody test. Um, I'm hopeful that once that is more developed, that will be really helpful in getting people to test it and then you can see who can go safe, for lack of a better word, right? Yeah. And what do you think about it? What's your take? <sighs> I am more, not more, I I think that there is pessimism just kind of ingrained in the current, and like my current understanding of everything. Uh, I don't anticipate my work life being up and running again at full capacity. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I think that spring 2021 is the earliest um, and that's, that's optimistic. Uh, I, the, the effects on my fall season are already being realized, uh, just in terms of cancellations and postponements. Um, Oh, really? For for the fall? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the the timeline for this sort of thing is interesting because a client for mid-March initially pushed back to May 1st and then, you know, (laughs) that was was kind of ridiculous. And then it was like, okay, now we're pushing back to... Uh, November, but I've already had clients uh-huh. in, like I had one client that was initially for mid-April, pushed back to September, and then, no, they were initially for June, and then they pushed back to September, and then they just pushed back to 2021 uh, for undetermined date. Wow. And, you know, 
in the not-for-profit sector, and you've been to these galas before, you need corporate sponsors to buy $100,000 tables, and you need individuals to buy $50,000 tables. And, and the markets are so all over the place right now, it's such a hard pitch to go to either private donors or corporate donors and say, hey, we, we would like you to cut a check the, if not six figures, yeah. then at least high five figures. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's interesting because I am known in my extended networks as an auctioneer, but the auctioneering is really the cherry on top of a much bigger Sunday. And you can't have a Sunday if you don't have a glass cup or bowl. And then you need <laughs> your bananas and you need your three scoops of ice cream and your chocolate sauce and your whipped cream mm -hmm. and the and the cherry comes on last and so when people come to me and say hey you know i have these ideas for how to do auctions the fact is that for these events and engaging donors like we haven't figured out all the other elements first and yeah the the conference calling that is currently available to various people from what I've seen is just not up to the task of engaging donors to a degree that you then can have those people, those outliers who I am targeting. Because if I get somebody to spend something, mm -hmm. you know, the money at an auction, it's a very small percentage. If you have 300 people at an event and you have six auction items, it means you're only financially optimizing 2% of the people in the room. You know, and then the skill set is how do I get other people to get donations? But that's that's all mm -hmm. events. That's all event based. It's all about having people in a room together, sharing an experience and being moved. Uh, and that's that's mm -hmm. what my business is. And so, mm -hmm. I think it would be naive of me to expect uh, to, to be planning for anything that didn't really take into account that I won't be. I'll be one of the last people up and running again for business. Mm -hmm. So are you, it's interesting that you say that because that's something that we're um, actually talking about a lot about with the New Leaders Council group right now. Um, we have a fundraiser scheduled for June currently. And um, we, so the year kind of runs on like a July to June kind of um, year timeline. Mm -hmm. And we generally do a lot of fundraising that wraps up when our fiscal year ends in June. And so right now we're kind of in a holding pattern of like, what's the pitch, you know, like you said, like, how do you, in your right mind, you know, ask somebody or expect somebody to give money when the world is falling apart in so many levels. Right. So like, have, have you, how are you dealing with that? Or So I, what's your take on it? I'm doing at least I've offered all my clients. So let's, let's say that from March 10th through end of June, I had, let's say 38 individual clients that were planning on holding fundraisers in that span. And all of them either have been canceled or postponed. And the ones that have called me up and said, hey, CK, this is what we're thinking about doing. The honest answer is each organization has to think about its own particular donor set because there is not gonna be a one size fits all approach. And you have to be hypersensitive to, you know, what you're, if, if you're a hospital that's raising money, then lean into the COVID. And right. if you're an arts organization, 
you have to think about it a little bit differently. You have to be a little bit more creative. Um, if you're an educational institution, you have to think differently. The, there's a lot of tertiary companies out there that provide payment processing at events. Uh, and they are incentivized to keep people using their products. And so they are trotting mm -hmm. out the examples of school fundraisers as being an example of how communities can come together to make virtual fundraisers work. And I just think it's a bad example because how, how can you transpose a group of parents who are raising money for their own kids' education and look at that for mm -hmm. like an organization like yours? where it's just a different dynamic. And so, yeah. like, if you and I were talking this through, which we are now talking it through, mm -hmm. the, it, it would just be like, okay, who were our biggest donors last year? And what, mm -hmm. what do they care most about? And given in how have they been affected by COVID? And how do we make what they care about now given the effects of COVID, what we do as compelling. Like, because look, there's going to be some people that weren't affected financially by this at all and are going to be flush with cash. I mean, they're obviously going to be the minority, but there's like, you have to understand that your donors might have shorted the market and are crushing it right now. And so this is the time to ask them yeah. for real big That's checks. Good point. And, yeah. you know, there's going to be other folks that, you know, maybe their wealth is in retail or in hospitality and they're just getting annihilated or, you know, like this is not the time to ask a jet blue for those travel vouchers for an auction. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it's, there's just a lot of hard work ahead of not for profits in trying to figure out on a, a individual, either corporate or private basis. Wh why, these people or entities gave before and what their current circumstances are vis-a-vis -vis COVID and how you can get them to give again. Mm -hmm. Good point. And, and what about the virtual fundraisers thing? What's your take on that? Do you think that that's ludicrous? Right now, I don't think it is. Because how would you get someone to tune in to a program from you know the, both the comfort and the you know not very razzle dazzle confines of their own home to engage with with this and you know all the people that's talking they're like oh but can't you still do do the auction i'm like no you can't do the auction because nobody's gonna <laughs> pay a premium for what I'm selling. It would be gauche. It's, it's not the right vibe. Like, like I, I only exist when capitalism mm -hmm. is at, at its most, uh, flamboyant and mm -hmm. there's not a lot of flamboyance going on right now. So yeah. it, if you can put together a program that is compelling and is authentic and is, is sincere, you know, what is that hook? what is going to get people to tune in to your fundraiser? Are you going to get a speech by, you know, or a live re recording from a Governor Cuomo, you know, or from a, you know, a, a Congressman, you know, Joe Kennedy the third, or, you know, are you going to get somebody like, are you going to get somebody like that, that, wow, we, we want to hear from this guy. And we know that at a price, you know, it's like pay-per-view at that point. 
you're selling a pay-per-view yeah. package at $95 to be able to tune in to hear this because um, he's going to be speaking or she's going to be speaking from her own home um, about the current situation, how it intersects with, uh, with your work. And mm -hmm. if you don't have that kind of high profile hook, I think it's going to be mm -hmm. real hard. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I can see that. I mean, that's, I appreciate your perspective on that. That's a huge struggle, you know, and obviously, as you know, it's such a big part of nonprofit. So a lot of like the crux of nonprofit organizations, you know, it's fundraising. So I consider myself like a low level tax collector because we live in a country that just hasn't put a premium on taxing its wealthiest citizens. And so instead yeah, of... That's a really good point. That's, that's, a, yeah, that's, that's a great way to say it. Because what am I doing but asking the 0.001% to, yeah. to, to, to give money? That in you know a socially democratic country like Denmark or Sweden, that money just comes through taxes and goes to the same sort of <laughs> programs, whether it's you know to feed yeah. the hungry for food insecurity or yeah. the arts or education or leadership. Like I am a yeah. tax collector. Yeah, that's true. That's a very good perspective. I think I totally agree with that. No. And, and so, though, like you said, <laughs> well, like you said, like it exists when capitalism is at its most flamboyant. You know, it's so true. It's like it's a product of the excess. I think that is is huge and very problematic in our country. There is a reporter whose name I have a very hard time pronouncing. Um, he is, let me see here. I'm going to try to sound this up. Anand Giridharadas. Um, he's a former columnist for the New York Times. Um, and he wrote a book called Winner's Take All. Um, and it was, kind of came out of, he was, I think, a... Aspen Institute fellow, uh, and he was going to all of these talks by you know titans of industry, and they were talking about their philanthropic um, goals and their you know their foundations and all the work that they were doing. And he was sort of like the little boy that saw the emperor uh, with no clothes and was like, wait a second. You're, you're putting all this money into your foundations while you're spending 10x that lobbying the government to put into place policies that are creating the circumstances and environment that make that foundation necessary in the first place. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, mean, I can't disagree. You know, I, I think you know. I think one of the case studies in his book, and I have, I need to read the book. Yeah. Like I, I've only heard him on a couple of podcasts, but you know, the case study for his book was, um, like some big, I want to say Bank of America. So it wasn't Bank of America, but like a Bank of America hired. I want to say Deloitte, one of the consulting companies, to figure mm -hmm. out, um, you know, w what they could do to improve worker productivity, and it was like, well. Um, you, you need to pay women more. You need to pay women equally and give them maternity leave and all these sorts of things. And they just were like, eh, no. And then continue to spend more money on lobbying uh, the government not to put in place laws that protected um, 
you know, the maternity leave for women. Like, it, oh, it, okay. it, you know, it was, it was just like one of those instances. Yeah. But, you know, they give token donations to women's rights groups. Right. Yeah, and get their name, like, plastered all over the side of the step and repeat thing. Ah, late capitalism at its most flamboyant. <laughs> most flamboyant. And, you know, and that's not to say that these not-for-profits aren't doing incredibly good work on, you know, a very acute level. Because um, I think in that book, Anand goes on to interview the not-for-profits themselves, and they're like, look, we need this money because it, it's not like we can rebel against this because people are still going right. hungry. Yeah. Like, like, right. yeah. <laughs> like, like they're still... Is, in the system. It's, so. And so, you know, the question always for me is, you know, do I want to be a revolutionary and try to tear down the system, or do I just want to make the system slightly more efficient uh, and empathetic? So that's that's kind of how I see myself in this whole whole machine. Um, yeah. But, you know, to your your question about how do you fundraise, you know, in order to further your goals uh, for leadership, for you know, because Lord knows we're going to need leaders um, who are helping us through you know the coming crises because I think they're only going to get worse. Um, mm-hmm. It's just it's it's figuring out who mm-hmm. who has the capital and who wants to double down and then and then making mm-hmm. it a compelling pitch because everybody's going to be desperate for money yeah yeah you know and i think actually like you know you're talking about a silver lining of this of the pandemic and um my of course my cnn on mute something just popped up about obama's endorsement of biden you know and i think one thing that the pandemic has done which i think is really important for the democratic party overall is to unify us you know i think like i hope so the time you know the time is is now and i think that the pandemic has has hopefully started that unification process which i think is desperately needs to happen you know i agree and the best news out of michigan's sister state wisconsin uh was that uh oh, yeah the judge Karfo- karfowski Karso- i can't pronounce yeah karofsky yeah well, David, David Kelly lost. Details, yeah, and know the story and the excitement. Um, and yeah, so the, yeah, that is great. And I think we also had a few folks from New Leaders Council in Wisconsin um, take some local seats in something, really? as I should remember, but I can't stop my head. Um, but congratulations. Yeah, so, and, and Wisconsin, as you know, like 2016, a huge state, you know. It's a battleground state. It's you know, Sadly. I mean, every, everything we need to figure out is runs through. I would say Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, and I guess you could maybe mm-hmm. throw Georgia in there. Um, I don't know. So okay, I, I have to ask you as somebody who cares about this sort of thing. Uh, if you got to choose right now, who would be Biden's running mate? Oh, Elizabeth Warren. Nice. Hands down, no questions asked. Was she your candidate of choice um, in the primary? So, to be honest, um, I so I'm I grew up in north northeastern Connecticut. Both my parents are from Massachusetts, so I consider myself a New Englander through and through. Um, campaign for Warren in her congressional campaigns when I was like a little kid. Cool. Um, loved her during the. Um, during the financial crisis, I mean, I think she saved the day. Yeah. Like she was the only one who knew what was going on with the banks. Um, she was the only adult and, in the room. 
Yeah, totally. The only one who would who understood it was, you know, could, could take them on about it. Um, but I, I think um, there's sometimes when I can be more of a moderate. And I think in recent years, um, not to get into the weeds too much, but in recent years, um, I, I started to prefer um, somebody like Joe Biden. Um, Interesting. Who's more moderate than than Elizabeth Warren. That said, I think that she is the smartest candidate, um, and I think like if everyone in America said, "Okay, we'll get on board with her idea," I think we would do the best, you know. But I think, you know, as you said, like where it comes down to is Wisconsin, it's Michigan, it's those states, you know. And I mean, if we want to win, we need to win in those states, you know. Would Elizabeth um, Warren say yes to Biden if he asked her to be his running mate? I mean, I'd like to think yes. Um, putting the putting the good of the country above any any. I mean, I don't know how she feels about Joe Biden. No idea. But um, if she did have any hesitation, hoping that she would put her her desire to lead over that. Do you think she would be better served as Treasury Secretary if Biden were to win than as Vice President? I mean, I think it depends on the levels of power that the Vice President has. I mean, I'm not sure. Um, I'm obviously not, you know, a federal government expert. I'm not sure exactly what like the slated powers of the Vice President are, but um, to my understanding, it depends a lot on what the President um, deputizes. From you, right? So I think if he put her in the right positions, um, that she could be very effective there. But so the same way that yeah, sure. Bush uh, put Cheney in charge of uh, a war on right. uh, global Islam, uh, maybe uh, Biden could put Warren um, on a war with uh, class inequality. Completely, totally. Yeah, I mean everything with the um, with the economy, with you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think 100. percent Who would? What about you? Uh, I want to have ask one more question first. Who would be your okay. least inspired choice uh, amongst the potential candidates for for Biden? Who would you just like roll your eyes and be like, look at Democrats picking the safe choice? It's going to cause them to lose once again. <laughs> good question actually one that i haven't thought of um jeez we should have more time to think about that one <laughs> uh so you know yeah i'm trying to think of like obvious choices yeah i mean and i feel like that's something i shouldn't shouldn't say until i've thought it through that's fair don't want to don't want to jab anyone unnecessarily. So the betting odds have Kamala Harris pretty high uh, as a potential um, running mate, as they do also for Amy Klobuchar, for Senator Klobuchar. And um, I think both of them are losing propositions. I think those are really, really misinformed choices. Um, I think that... Interesting. I, I think that Kamala Harris... Um, doesn't get you any new votes. Does it? Does it convince anybody who wasn't already going to vote for you to vote for you? Because 
um, as a friend of mine who is African-American said on an earlier pot, uh, podcast, Kamala Harris is a cop, and there's a lot of people who don't want to vote for cops. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, she's also from California, and, you know, I think Senator Klobuchar is very smart, but um, I think that Biden is at a charisma deficit. Um, I think that, you know, unfortunately, sometimes there are, mm-hmm. are moments where it seems like his brain is dying before our very eyes. Um, and you need somebody who uh, can step in uh, during a presidential campaign and be hyper charismatic, hyper articulate. And mm-hmm. that's why I'm really hoping that he picks Stacey Abrams, who I think is so smart uh, and so capable uh, and so articulate. Um, and I think that the work that she's already done in Georgia uh, on voter suppression and just mm-hmm. guaranteeing the right to vote for citizens yeah. um, all around the country uh, will be mm-hmm. so crucial that that has to be at the forefront of Democrats' um, strategy is mm-hmm. to ensure, like, just to dump a ton of money into, you know, going to the places where voter suppression will take place. Um, Milwaukee yeah. uh, for the, yeah. I mean, they they closed. I think 180 plus voting sites during the pandemic and only had five open in Milwaukee, which is predominantly right. Democrat. I mean, it's just right. absurd. Yeah. Yeah. And they have to stand in the line next to people for hours. Hours like, oh in the God. rain. It, it was raining yeah. on top of it all. And so I, I think understanding yeah. that, um, you know, with you know, states attorneys generals, uh, federal attorney general, uh, the way that voting suppression is just going to be um, endemic, uh, that putting that forth is one of the obstacles we have to overcome, um, will be more to the forefront if uh, Stacey Abrams is running mate. I just, I just am so drawn to her, um, you know, just as a thinker and as a person. Um, yeah. So, Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm hoping not for Kamala Harris or for Senator Klobuchar. Um, if, if they want cabinet appointments, I'm all for that. But I don't think he's. Good. I don't think either of them are going to help beat Trump. Whereas I think Stacey Abrams could really, really bring out mm-hmm. a certain disaffected voter. Um, that you know, I, I think that some of the Bernie Bros could be brought over um, for Biden. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so. Oh, so here's my question, I guess, about that. So, like, the Bernie, you know, the very left-wing contingent, um, do you think that, like, if there was an election between, say, no running mates, Biden versus Trump, would they really not go to the polls because they don't want to vote for Biden? There are, and I was just having this conversation on Friday um, on the, on a podcast, and so it's fresh in my mind. Oh, okay. um, oh. No, God, no. That's <laughs> a, my average listener is like eighteen people, and this was the longest one. This is this is something that oh, is really? yeah. I mean, not to not to disappoint you, but um, what what this is? It's an exercise in documenting um, what is the strangest times in all of our lives, um, yeah. and yeah. so uh, the fact that. You, this conversation will be up on Spotify either later tonight or tomorrow. And, you know, you'll be able to go back and hear from your own voice, yeah. um, you know, just what you were thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's great. 
It's uh, great. I mean, everybody, you know, loves to do stuff like this. So great. You know, it, it, but to answer your question, what yeah. what my friend was saying, who was a very pro Bernie guy, and he was part of that Bernie contingent, twenty nine years old, African American. Um, you know, him and all his friends. He's in the Facebook groups, and he's saying, I know people that won't vote for anybody but Bernie, and and he wasn't saying this. I was put. This is this is me framing it. But but there is part of Bernie's base that is very analogous to parts of Trump's base where yeah. it's there's a virulence there is uh it's spurred on by anger more than hope um there is a lack of compromise there's a cultishness to it um and so all those elements coming together there are some true Bernie or bust people and the I think the apt uh, analogy is that there are evangelicals out there that if Jesus Christ himself came down from heaven and said, look, we need you to redistribute wealth and help out the poor because your mega churches are all about, you know, funding your private jets. Um, you know, some, some, some of these, some of these church leaders would be like, you know, who do you think you are? You're just some, some Jewish guy. And, and I think that in the same vein, no matter what Bernie says and asks of his followers, there are some that are so twisted up, would say, like, would turn on Bernie himself um, and if he asked them to vote for um, Biden. So that's kind of a long and unclear answer, but I think that we will be able to get a good percentage of the Bernie supporters, um, will it be good enough? It will be interesting to see how many of those disaffected white swing state voters, male angry swing state voters who oftentimes just embody trolls and are, um, you know, they're, they're the ones who went after Warren and, you know, just turned yeah. so many people off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I like to think that as Democrats, the, the hardcore Bernie fans are better than that, but but, but they're not Democrats. Know, Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat. I think that's one of the the yeah. the things that we we forget that Bernie Sanders isn't a Democrat. Yeah, that's true. And well, you know. <laughs> I, I I hope to be I hope to be proven right. Yeah, I hope so too. Right no. Have to be proven right on that. Uh, I just that they do that, plan, <laughs> yeah. No, I look. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunately just very binary, right? It, it either we win or lose, and maybe it's a little more complicated than that because if we don't win the White House but we pick up the Senate uh, and hold on to the House, then that's a move in the right direction. Though I think it's kind of unlikely. But yeah. you know, if if we don't win the White House or the Senate. Um, it's going to be a long, dark night. Yep. <sighs> On that uplifting note. <laughs> I know. I know. That's what I was just thinking. I was like, oh, yeah. Just Ugh. thinking, you know. Ugh. God, we're all still quarantined. Talk to you again two years from now and we're still at it. 2022. Trump can't get a test together. Jesus. Well, Emily, I've taken up nearly an hour of your time. I really appreciate you coming on and talking all this stuff through with me. Um, 
Yeah, of course. I mean, there... It was great. I always <laughs> love to talk and always by myself in this apartment. So it worked out well. Um, is there anything you'd like to share with the listeners? Just uh, uh, something that might bring a smile to their faces in these in these troubling times. Oh, gee. Well, something to bring a smile to people's faces. I mean, I think that I know I can speak for myself and a lot, probably a lot of other listeners, um, that I think this is a really good time to count our blessings. I mean, and to say a prayer of thanks to whichever God or spirit you believe in. You know, I think that like, just by virtue of us having the time and resources to do this podcast, um, we are all very lucky. And, you know, considering that like, this is a global pandemic, um, obviously some more than others, but that like, our biggest some of our biggest challenges are like extra time um and loneliness i think that that's not too bad so i think that's something to be said for that i think that is a really hopeful and honest note and thank you so much for for chatting with me today be well and be safe great thank you you too bye-bye